Hello, thank you so much for tuning back into the Story Podcast. As always, I'm Harris, your host, and my usual co-host, Sammy, is actually on the road. She is traveling the entire month of December, uh, and I'm pretty excited that we're going to change it up a little bit on this episode because we have some more Story team members in the studio, Kellen and Kate, both of which were a huge part of Pulling Off Story 2016, uh, and all the other things that we're constantly trying to do behind the scenes to serve you guys. So please welcome to the show, Kate and Kellen. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so excited to be they here. They just looked, you guys couldn't see this, but they just looked at each other trying to figure out who's Making supposed to sure. go first. Uh, she's, am I supposed to talk now or are you supposed to talk? Um, I, actually, I think you've been on the podcast before, right, yes. Kellen? You were talking about... Um, we were some, talking about what we were excited about. Oh, yeah, about our for, favorite things, like we yes. were, what we were most looking forward to for story. Uh, well, we're excited this week because we have one of our story 2016 speakers who... Uh, lives on the West Coast, but happened to be visiting back in Nashville again. Uh, Rick Reckadall from DreamWorks Animation. Uh, and he's going through an exciting season of life. Uh, I think it's public news now that uh, DreamWorks was recently acquired by Universal. Um, and so that's been a fun, uh, it's been fun just to kind of keep in touch with Rick through this transition and uh, all the exciting changes that are going on in his life and in his world. Um, but I'm really excited about this interview. You guys both had a chance to meet him at Story. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Really great guy. Do you guys have a favorite DreamWorks movie? Um, mine would probably be Shrek. Just because, I mean, it's like the classic DreamWorks thing, and it's just, it's so funny, and I, th- I feel like it was made for the adults. And, as definitely, as, as much as the kids. But me sure. and my kids actually just watched Kung Fu Panda for the first time last night, which my son loved and now wants to work on all of his ninja moves. <laughs> <laughs> I can totally I would, picture you running yeah, around the house. Yeah, like he, totally, he was so excited about it. I would love to see that. <clears throat> I would have to go with Shrek too. I just remember um, as a kid watching that and loving it and actually understanding the humor. Whoa, 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 which is whoa, hold up. Okay. As a kid? Yeah. Oh, it came man. out a long time ago. Now oh. I feel old. I <laughs> think I watched age? Shrek as like a teenager. Well, then, yeah. I was a kid. <laughs> I was totally <laughs> expecting Kellen to say trolls uh, just because of Justin Timberlake. Well, I can't say that because I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> um, but I'm You're sure like, that yeah, it's but it's going to be my favorite movie. Because, it's going to yeah, be my favorite right. movie because it has Justin Timberlake. Right. I'm sure it'll probably be Shrek. Because she kind of has like an obsession with all oh things my, JT. Oh but who doesn't? I do too. He's okay. absolutely talented. <laughs> uh, anyway, super excited to sit down with Rick. Uh, you guys are going to love this interview. He he has so much experience. Um, he, Rick started out, he, first of all, he's been one of only, I think, two executives that have been at DreamWorks Studios for the entire 20-something year history of the company. Uh, I mean, he's held a lot of different jobs and played a lot of different roles over the years, which I think has given him just a unique perspective on different facets of different storytelling industries. He's worked in toys. He's worked in franchising. Um, he's been hands-on with some of the filmmaking process and then trying to figure out what do we do with these different entities and uh, brands after they're finished playing in the theater to continue monetizing them. Just kind of the real world, nuts and bolts, practical business side of all things related to storytelling um, and just art and creativity in general. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode. My interview here in Nashville, Tennessee while he was visiting in town to do a lecture at a local university, something he does a lot of these days. Here's my interview with Rick Reckadal from DreamWorks Animation. Rick, thank you so much. You're in Nashville right now. I am. You're in yes. town. Tell us why you're in town really quick. Well, I'm in town uh, for a couple of days this week uh, to uh, attend a board meeting at Belmont tomorrow for their film school. And then I called you up and you said, come on over. 
Yes, it was awesome. I'm so glad you were able to stop by. Uh, the schedule was crazy at Story this past year at the conference. And so, um, yeah, it's nice that we, I didn't have to fly all the way to California to get you on the podcast. <laughs> so thanks for coming to us. I'm glad Happy it worked out while you're here. Time. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, give us a little bit of background. Um, for those of you who heard you speak at Story, they know that you've, you've been at DreamWorks Animation for how many years? Yeah, almost 21 years. Yeah. 21 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've been doing what exactly over the well, course of those 21 years? Well, lots of different years? jobs. I've uh-huh. worn lots of hats. Uh, I came into the job totally through the side door and um, uh, never planned to take that step until the door opened. I actually started when I was still in college working at a toy company. And even that, I didn't know I was applying for a job at a toy company. I found this uh, on the job board. I found this ad for $10 an hour, um, 10 key data entry. Can you work in our accounts payables department? And I thought, I can type, I can do 10 key. That's easy job. (laughs) So I go down and apply with like, you know, a form on a clipboard Uh in this little office. And it turns out to be the US arm of the largest Japanese toy company, Tomi Toys. And I discover that I'm working for a toy company and I fall in love with the toy industry. So I worked for Tomi for a couple, three years. And although they're not a big brand name here in the US, they're the people that are behind big brands like Pokemon. Um, and so they are, you know, a huge conglomerate and I learned a lot right away. And then I went to work for, um, another company nearby in LA called Playmates Toys. How old are you around this time? Uh, by this time, early, early twenties. Okay. And, um, uh, Playmates Toys also not a household name like you would recognize Hasbro or Mattel, but Playmates for now many, many years has been the company of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And they had this line starting kind of the first time um, in that kind of late 80s, early 90s window. And so I joined that that team, uh, you know, lowest man on the totem pole, uh, kind of, you know, got my foot in the door there and uh, had a nice run at Playmates for about six years, learned the toy business in and out, uh, wore lots of different hats on the design side as well as the marketing side, learned sales, uh, learned uh, manufacturing with uh, factories in China, um, learned the industry trade show system of how to go to New York Toy Fair, Um, you know, kind of just all kids entertainment development 101 from Mm -hmm. the toy industry side of the business. By the time I had finished that run, I had also worked on a couple of licenses from Amblin. Amblin was Steven Spielberg's production company for Mm -hmm. many years and uh, had done the toys for um, a very uh, short-lived TV show called Sequest, DSV. Some fans may remember Sequest as the Roy Scheider series uh, that was uh, kind of under, we called it Star Trek Underwater, if you will. <laughs> and um, we thought, okay, this will, and we had done the Star Trek toys. It's and funny so that thought, I'm unfamiliar with it, but just by that description, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. I can There are so that. many people that are going right now, oh, I know totally what you're talking about, Sequest. Uh, it's got a big cult following out there. Okay. And then also did the action figures for Zorro, uh, the film with Antonio Banderas and mm-hmm. Anthony Hopkins and Catherine Zeta-Jones. And it was in that process I got to meet um, a guy named Brad Glow who had run Amblin for Steven Spielberg for 20 years and and early on uh, was invited into a meeting with Spielberg to show him some of my designs for uh, the Zorro action figures of all things and uh, and that opened a door and um, and sure enough within about six months I had a former boss that had worked at Playmates who was a mentor of mine 
who had also gone over to DreamWorks when they were first starting. And he brought me in, and I will be forever grateful for him opening the door for me. So this and, is all, this, the Spielberg meeting, this is all but way before DreamWorks was even... Well, no, dream, yeah, that was before DreamWorks was getting going, but then about six months, maybe 12 months later, um, they called and I went back. Um, I will tell you, I never really thought of myself as moving to a movie studio. I thought of myself, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool toy designer. I'm going to be doing this for years. I had won Action Figure of the Year. I had won Board Committee of the Year at that point. You know, I was thinking, like, That's this amazing. is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And then... Um, a couple of years later, after I'd been working in the early years at DreamWorks, it dawned on me one day, oh, shoot, I, I work for the movies, you know. <laughs> I'm in rooms with movie producers and movie directors and hearing, reading scripts. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to learn this business, you know. Yeah, I, I have to ask, that meeting with Spielberg, was there an awareness of what you were about to do? Oh my gosh! I were you was, like, uh, were you telling your friends and everyone? Like, I was showing I these designs. I was showing these designs, and um, and then Brad says, "Well, I think Steven should see these," and I just was pretty sure he meant Steven Spielberg. But you know, I and so I said, "Well, I can leave them for you," and he said, "No, just hold on a minute." <laughs> and five minutes later, you know, in walks the Pope, basically, <laughs> and and I feel my my neck getting red up to my ears, you know, and I'm shrinking into my collar. And he's the most gracious guy. And, and he just says, hey, Brad said you have some interesting ideas. And, you know, I found myself, like, telling him what I was working on and feeling embarrassed about it. And he was so supportive. That's it was, amazing. It was a great first meeting. I, even right now, the thing that's, I'm, that I'm processing in my mind is I think when I picture Steven Spielberg and I'm like, hmm, wonder what he's doing today. I don't, I don't imagine that he's sitting around an office to go in and look at some toy designs. You know, I feel always like he's busy directing movies, but I guess it just shows me how much he has his hands involved in. Yeah. I mean, you know, definitely the artist's artist. And, you know, uh, he w had famously said, you know, for about DreamWorks, we want to build a place uh, about ideas and the people that have them. And, you know, even as being kind of the low man on the totem pole, not coming in from the film side, coming in kind of from the consumer product side, um, even my little touches on that side of the business um, ushered me into a, a whole different, a whole different way to understand the creative process. It was awesome. Wow. That's amazing. So that was your foray into DreamWorks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you started out doing what there? Yeah. So I started out, I was my, my internal title was the toy guy. Um, uh, within a few years, you know, we had... Um, uh, some of our own properties in development. We had a uh, licensing uh, arrangement with Hasbro Toys, and so I kind of was shepherding that relationship. And then over the years, um, you know, you start to build your catalog, have a few hits, and all of a sudden the momentum picks up. And then, um, so I was head of licensing, uh, took on interactive, uh, and became kind of the, the video game guy. Uh, we ended up finding kind of a lot of the the opportunity for DreamWorks consumer products in those days was in the video game side of the business, um, uh, especially Shrek and Kung Fu Panda and Madagascar. They just were tailor-made to continue to tell the story in the PS2 game, for instance. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a great partner in Activision in those days who um, kind of let us embed the developer into the creative process. And so, you know, animators on the film are able to shepherd animators on the game and writers on the film are able to uh, kind of, you know, approve and even direct writing in the game. So we really wanted to make sure that it felt like an extension of the humor and extension of that story uh, and not just a way to kind of, you know, regurgitate the movie story in a gaming environment. When, when did 
the power of story and narrative hit you? Was that something that you were always aware of, even in the beginning days of designing toys? Or was it, oh, no, these guys write the story. I'm just here to design a toy that looks like the character that they in the story that they wrote. What I started to realize is, um, you know, to to make the cut to be a part of a kid's life. And when they decide you've made it, it's when you've earned the right to be on their bedroom floor. You know, and, you know, and if you look at an elementary school age kid, uh, you can kind of guess what you're going to see on their floor if they're a boy or a girl based on, you know, the kinds of properties that become useful to them, that become inspirational to them. Mm-hmm. And I started to feel like, you know, that isn't that isn't a commercial sellout if you've made a toy of your movie. Instead, that's a that's an extension of the story that is so gripping and so inspirational that you become part of that kid's life. And I remember when I was a kid, you know, the, 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 the toys that ended up on my bedroom floor in many ways were how I worked out my stories. You know, um, I'm, I'm old. So I grew up on shows like <laughs> the rock. I grew up on, ro- I grew up on Rockford files, right? Uh-huh. Um, uh, SWAT, uh, Adam yeah. 12, you know, emergency where the, all the shows I watched. And as a little boy, uh, moving my little matchbox cars around my bed sheets at night after my mom tucked me in when I wasn't supposed to be up playing was really working out little stories of all of those things that I had seen and watched. And now I'm working them out, you know, and parking them like kind of like under my pillow before I went to sleep mm-hmm. and things like that. And so I kind of started to feel like for us, um, kind of the the way that story really impacts a kid's life is it, it story play is kind of a, a kid's work uh, the, the job that a kid does does to work out how life works i mean that's really kind of the play of a child and um uh, girls may do more role play and uh, boys may do more adventure play but now that's uh, and not to sound like i'm uh putting those in a box uh, those norms are you know uh really kind of changing up right now and mm-hmm. we're starting to see and i'm the dad of three girls at home we're starting to see a lot of empowerment into girl adventure play i'm a big fan of lego and a lot that a lot that they've always done to help kind of inspire girls to feel free and um to not have to feel like they have to go down a boy's aisle or a girl's aisle you know when they're bringing those pieces home mm-hmm. um, but that's to me the kind of the best way to understand play and what that really means is the work of a kid working out how life works and the stories that they've heard are also a part of um, them kind of processing those ideas and working them out. Yeah. It reminds me that, you know, you were telling stories at age seven, even though you did, you weren't aware of the fact that that's what you were doing, that you were storytelling and living a story. And it makes me realize that that's really what we're all doing. All human beings are telling stories and living out a story. And we're just not all aware of the fact that we're storytellers, I guess. When was the, was there a transition for you where someone at DreamWorks said, Hey, why don't, why don't you come in the room now and start being a part of actually telling these stories versus us coming to you after the story's already written? Well, you know, um, we always want to make sure that even as I eventually kind of morphed into what's called franchise development. And we also want to make sure that the story leads the vision. And so we, you know, kind of sit with our storytellers, our filmmakers and hear what story is that they want to tell. Um, once we kind of understand what their stories are that they would want to tell, then a part of our job, part of my job, they became to be able to kind of reflect back to them. Here's how that story will light up a kid's life. These are the areas that um, will be particularly inspiring to them. Uh, if you're telling the story in that way, um, this is how the kids are going to want to take it home and extend it into other places mm-hmm. and helping discover what the organizing principles are inside uh, those worlds so that uh, we kind of lower the threshold to where the next stories can be told you know that that movie experience is a powerful 
86 minute movie experience usually, <laughs> you know, for yeah. us. Um, but, um, uh, we have an opportunity to also plant some seeds of where some of the future stories could be told. And so it can be more seamless than when you take it into an ongoing comic book series or even something like a collector card series where you aren't just kind of retelling a movie moment, but you're actually telling more of the story we didn't get to tell you, you know, in the film itself. Yeah. What, uh, so, so once you moved beyond the toy thing, you started doing interactive. How did you see, were there certain rules that were carried over from toys to interactive or was that like a totally different business? Totally different. Um, you don't have to worry about the same kinds of challenges. A good toy line always looks for where the play pattern is, where the repeatable play pattern of how I play with these toys can surface and become the reason why I go back to them. And they're three dimensional objects, you know, that I'm holding and playing with, uh, a game has less pressure to do that, but has more pressure to feel like the movie, the level of humor, the level of surprise. Um, one of the things we did, um, if you remember in Shrek two, uh, which is one of my favorite movies we worked on, uh, Shrek and Fiona get a notice that they have to go too far, far away in early in the film. And then donkey, you know, uh, Gets, hitches, a, hitches a ride with mm -hmm. them, and we're going in the onion coach, and we passed a sign that says, you know, far, far away, 900 miles away. Uh, <laughs> cut to, okay, we're rolling up to the, to the gates of far, far away. We're making a movie. That's how this works. Uh, and we saw that as a huge opportunity in the game. And we said, in the game, we're telling the same story, but we're going to stretch that. We're going to stretch that accordion so that um, you know the journey too far, far away ended up being four levels. And uh, we discovered places like uh, Gingy's um, Candy Forest and Jack and Jill's Way Out Hippie Farm, and you know uh, just other locations we ran into Robin Hood's Merry Men, I think, along the way. Um, and so it let us kind of tell more of the story, and so it felt mm -hmm. like an extension of that movie world, but still, you know, was good, unique gaming on its own. So amazing. <laughs> so you're doing toys, you're doing interactive. What comes after that? Um, you know, a big kind of market changer for us and for me, for all of us over the past 10 years or so has been the shift in the platforms. And, you know, at some point along comes the tablet and along comes this game called Angry Birds. And really? So that was one of the first ones, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it. You know, it. if you think back, you know, what were the kind of the major milestones yeah. in any gaming cycle that kind of is a disruptor and says, oh, you don't have to do that so much anymore. Now you're doing this, right? And all of a sudden we're all, <laughs> we're all in Angry Birds and trying to get to the eagle and everything else. Um, completely changed um, kind of the perception of what content means and, and when I can get content and how I can play with content. And uh, now I've got content in my hand. Um, and then along comes YouTube and along comes, you know, uh, now today, all the different social media platforms that aren't just social media platforms for messaging each other, but are now content streams. You know, just last uh, earlier this fall, we saw Twitter start to broadcast NFL games. And I thought that was a huge moment to mark. We don't I don't have anything to do with Twitter. That's not our business. You know, sure. That's not our company. But um a platform that really ostensibly was supposed to be just for messaging each other, although used powerfully, um, all of a sudden has been having like, you know, 10 million people on a Thursday night watching an NFL game on their phone through Twitter. So completely reinventing how to think of what those channels mean. Um, so going back to then, you know, kind of what we were looking at and what I felt like part, partly what my, what my role could be would start to be to think of what are the different touch points of story in all of those different places of 
of those platforms. I think our need for story never changes. You know, we look to stories that inspire us uh, in many ways because we feel changed by the end of that story. And I like to talk about how my understanding of the power of story is that story is change. You know, good stories, bad stories, by the time I've heard it, either I'm changed for the better or changed for the worse in the sense of how I feel or why why I feel a certain way or what's, how it's affected me. And it might even cause me to behave differently because of that change. I may be inspired to do something different. If I've read a good Breaking Your Habits book, then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, for the next period of my life, I've had an epiphany about how I'm going to break my habits, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever it is. Um, understanding kind of how the, the need for story never changes, but the platforms as they change, change our shape of the story. They change how we interact with that story. You know, um, a friend of mine who's um, kind of a really well-known um, kind of expert in this space, his name is Kevin Maurer. Um, he talks about, you know, over the last two years, more unique individual stories have been told than in the history of mankind. If you think of that kind of supercomputer in our pocket, as you called well, it earlier, which yeah. is the smartphone we all carry around with each other, it lets us all tell our mini stories, even if they're micro stories, mm-hmm. um, and how we're engaging with each other all the time. And you know, you see the stats about how many hundreds of hours of content are published into YouTube every minute. So we're never gonna get a chance to see it all, but when you are included in a circle of friends who are sharing stories to each other, how much more engaging are you know is that for each other and how we become kind of connected to each other so to me being aware of that the need for story never changes but the platforms definitely change how we tell our stories man so there's there's so much experience you have through throughout that 21 yeah. 22 year process <laughs> right. i guess of working somewhere like dreamworks animation um, was there an aha moment is is there like a and it's okay if there's not but is there this moment where you realized it all clicked and you had this epiphany on story and how it's intertwined in everything? Or did you really just kind of know that from the beginning when you first started designing toys? Um, there have been a couple of moments uh, over the years that I felt it really kind of hit me hard or it hit me kind of um, in, in a moment of realization, you mm-hmm. know, like a little dash of cold water, like, oh, that's what we do. Yeah. Um, uh, now it gets to the point where uh, like I also teach a college class on Monday nights um, in LA for um, actually for Belmont University, which is right here in Nashville. Um, and I'm in town to do some teaching there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Just last night on my Monday night class, before I flew here, one of my students, and she's 20, probably 22, 23 years old, she came up and she said, oh my gosh, when I was young, I played the Shrek 2 video game. And my brother and I used to have to fight for who would play who in which level. And then she goes on to tell me like this five or six minute story. And I'm sitting there thinking, I am so old. <laughs> it but doesn't some, feel like Shrek is that old. Really? But in some so small way. students were kids. Yeah. And so in some small way, you know, you have to feel like these stories matter to people. And yes, at the end of the day, okay, they're cartoons and plastic landfill. But on the other hand, you know, it, I, as a as a kid myself growing up on Looney Tunes and and you know the Disney movies and you know some of the other stories that were important to me being a kid that was just raised on uh, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe and reading The Hobbit a million times and things like that the kinds of shaping influences that kind of gave me a, a part of the worldview and how I see it when I had kids then you know part of our Saturday morning ritual was having them sit on my lap and I would make sure we watched a couple of two or three Looney Tunes cartoons 
because they have to know who Yosemite Sam is and they have to know who Bugs Bunny is if they're going to be my kid, yeah. you know? And so we kind of pass those on and my kids love to tease me about that, of course, now. Sure. Um, but when they see you out there in the, in the, in the social sphere and somebody else doesn't know what that is, my kids will say, you idiot, that's Foghorn Leghorn. I know who that is. <laughs> right? My dad told me that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So other than feeling old, your epiphany was, I suppose, that just the the depth at which this is a part of the texture of everyday life now. If, the fact if, that you're a part of creating all that. That's, yeah, that's gotta, you got to feel some sort of weight. It's so humbling to be speaking in, in a location or even just sharing with somebody over dinner. And all of a sudden they'll say, you were a part of that because that was the most important thing to me. You know, um, we hear that a lot from people about the How to Train Your Dragon franchise. And, you know, the filmmakers that helped shepherd the How to Train Your Dragon stories, some of the best in the business, uh, people like Dean DeBlaw and Chris Sanders uh, helped bring those stories to life on screen. Um, you know, I had a very small role there early on where, you know, we had this book that we had acquired. Our development executive, Chris Kuser, had brought the story in called How to Train Your Dragon. Um, but, you know, kind of one of the things I said early on is, you know, if we, if we do this right, we could build a world of dragons. We could build a kind of an expanding universe of all the different breeds and species and what their attributes are and why certain ones can beat other ones or what their special natures are. And it's going to help attach to different kids' personalities in the universe. And, you know, 15, 20 years from now, we'll have some movie sequels, but we also will have a generation of kids who can say, boy, I understand dragons, hmm. you know, because of DreamWorks Dragons. Um, and so to even have been just a tiny part of something like that, you know, it's pretty special. It makes me curious what your thoughts are on the part on being a part of children's entertainment versus entertaining adults. Do you, is there a bigger responsibility knowing you're shaping the way these kids are growing up? Well, you know, versus, you know, cool. We got an adult to spend 12 bucks at the movie theater for two hours. It, it definitely, um, there's, I feel like there's a little bit of a different charge, you know, um, because especially for a, a movie experience, um, when you are a kid sitting in the movie theater, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of captive there because the lights go down and you're sitting next to your parents and you got your popcorn and it's not like you're at home when you can turn the lights on or pause the movie if it gets a little scary, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it's a very immersive experience. I've had that experience as a dad, uh, with, you know, a young kid in my lap who's climbing up over my shoulder saying, daddy, this is scary. We need to go out, you know, we need to go to the lobby right now, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, there definitely is a charge there. Um, you know, Walt Disney, um, had this kind of like timeless phrase about his vision for making movies, which I learned from Jeffrey Katzenberg, which, you know, Jeffrey used to talk about from Walt's perspective, that you know, he had this vision to make movies for children and for the child li that lives in the heart of every adult, yeah, every one of us, and and that's I think part of why you know those those Disney movies have such magic, you know, for us uh, for many years, you know, I heard would hear Jeffrey say, you know, that's always going to be true for them, and for us, especially in this kind of new era we have an opportunity to make the animated movies that inspire us and also for the emerging grown-up in the heart of every child. That um, in, in many ways, kids today, can we can feel like they're getting older a little younger. We definitely feel like they're savvy technologically. Um, I think that the ages and stages don't change. And what I've learned, even the little bit I've learned about child development and being a parent myself, um, uh, we can't grow them up too quickly. We have to let them you know, kind of be in their kids' zones 
for a, a developmental reason. And yet that ability to be able to aspire up um, is powerful. Um, there's a generational change that's happened with millennial parents uh, that we're seeing. And that if, so, so if you're a parent today between the ages of 25 and 40, um, and the average age of a new parent in this country is 25, so you know, mm. new parents are solidly, sure. solidly millennials now. Um, generally speaking, millennial parents tend to look for experiences for their children that they also enjoy. So, you know, even when I was a dad of young kids almost 20 years ago, um, I would look for things that my kids could do, but then I would send them off to do that and maybe not sit and do all of that with them, unless it's a Looney Tunes cartoon. Sure. But um, increasingly, parents today really do look for um, things to enjoy with their kids together. So part of the opportunity today is to be able to make kids content or kids entertainment that actually does both that actually helps also um, kind of feed and satisfy that content need for the parent as well. Yeah. I mean, when I hear movies like Shrek or even some of the Pixar films talked about as children's entertainment, and there's a little part of me that's like, oh, it's kind of unfair because there's, there's probably more laugh moments throughout Shrek for the adults than there are for the kids because there's so much humor that's on the level of an adult. Um, and obviously that's all intentional, right? Because the parents are taking their kids to the movie theater and experiencing it together. Um, so yeah, I mean, is it really children's mm -hmm. entertainment? Well, you know, it, it used to be kind of a truism that animation was for kids in this market. Mm -hmm. And I always felt like our market was a little bit behind some of the other global markets, um, especially places like Japan or France, that kind of consider animation more of a genre than a, um, or I'm sorry, more of a medium than a genre. You know, if you think of it as a genre, then you could say, okay, it's really just for kids. But if you think of it as a storytelling medium, and it can tell lots of different kinds of stories, um, then you you can break out of that kind of just for kids only zone. And you know, mm -hmm. I know that was a big part of uh, what I always heard kind of from Jeffrey, what he wanted to do with DreamWorks, especially in the early years, was to help kind of break those molds and kind of take animation into whole new, whole new places and have it be viewed as a storytelling medium. One of the things I like about um, talking about the power of animation and the immersive quality of that uh, kind of medium for storytelling is that unlike a live action film where you're really dependent on the actor bringing the, the story to life in, the, in their emotional face and in their uh, expressions and in really the acting power that they bring to it and the best actors are paid well because they do such a great job at that. In animation, although we have a heightened sense of realism today with all the animation tools we have, um, you know, uh, a, you have a lot of other tools to be able to use to evoke that emotional intensity. Uh, the color script of the scenes that we're in throughout the story, Act 1, 2, and 3, is uh, really designed to surface that emotional connection, you know. And some of it's not really rocket science. It's kind of obvious that the scary scenes are going to be kind of full of strong reds and blacks. And, you know, the peaceful scenes are a little bit, you know, kind of softer pastels of meadow greens and, mm -hmm. you know, sunset oranges and things like that. Uh, if you start to watch an animated movie uh, next time when you're watching one of your favorite movies, turn the sound off and then kind of watch the palette as the characters are going through their emotional arc of a scene that you've seen a million times. Um, I did this, uh, I was on a flight from London just last week, and I'm sure all the people around me who were looking at me thought that guy's a total geek. Um, <laughs> on the flight from home from London, I found that they had Dumbo on the on the dial. Sure. 
and I call it up. It's to me, it's one of my top, you know, top five animated movies of all time. And, um, and I watched, um, the middle 10 minutes of that Dumbo when he goes, uh, back to visit his mom and she's in the caged, um, she's in the caged train car and she has to reach her trunk out and she kind of, uh, you know, caresses him and holds him, uh, as, as she sings uh, baby mine. And that's that whole kind of montage. And so I've heard that song a million times. It always makes me cry. But then I watched it again with a sound off. And I kind of was noticing the, the um, color script that they used in that whole sequence. Uh, and it was really dramatic and really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, you know, as a, kind of somebody who's, I feel like I'm still always learning what this craft is all about. You know, um, it's, it's a, a fun exercise to do. Yeah. I mean, and there are studios now that have made purely animated films just for adults, right? There's some like adult films that are coming up or coming out like, and cartoons, I guess is another great example on TV. What does that say about animation? You think? Well, you know, um, the, the granddaddy of them all, I think in that sense for this last generation is Simpsons, mm-hmm. you know, which now I think is going on its 21st year, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and talk about being able to uh, South park is another great example of, uh, using the medium and not being stuck into the genre to completely re-engage uh, you in a different way with the story concepts that they're talking about. Um, the South Park, guard, South Park guys brilliantly, what, a week and a half ago, were able to get a, um, a reaction to the U.S. election episode out like the very next day. Wow. Right? And, you know, they were able to use, you know, their storytelling medium to uh, kind of affect the public discussion about all that whole conversation because they were able to put a South Park episode out the very next day. And that's important to people. It helps give them a way to talk about uh, either a difficult conversation or any conversation in a medium that they understand. And I think that's maybe part of that storytelling power. And obviously, I think we can all agree that neither The Simpsons or South Park would be the same level of success if they just took the exact same script and just took it to live actors and tried to film it. So what is it about it being animation that makes it so different? Well, we forgive uh, all sorts of things, you know, when we know when we're in a certain medium, it's just like when you love your kid's finger painting and you put it on the fridge, you know, <laughs> I could buy a print by Picasso and it's never going to make my fridge. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we definitely will forgive a lot in terms of the context of that medium and just hear the message, you know, um, f- storytellers or filmmakers or anybody who's kind of, I think maybe trying to, either stretch their budgets or stretch their boundaries kind of beyond what they are. People can smell that, you know, yeah. you, you, you could, it doesn't really pass the sniff test. Yeah. I remember when I first called you and asked you to come speak a story. One of our, our initial conversation was like an hour long and we talked about so many different things that just left me completely fascinated. Um, and one, one was we talked about, you told me a story about, you know, growing up and you always see your dad reading his Bible because he had an actual paper Bible. And I don't know how we ended up talking about the Bible, mm-hmm. but you're talking about today, so many people are reading it on an app, on yeah. a phone. Mm-hmm. And sorry, while you grow, grew up seeing your father do that, the dangerous thing of letting your kids grow up, they don't know that you are that you could be playing an iPhone game for all they know, or reading the news, or scrolling a Twitter timeline. Talk to me a little about that. Yeah, you know. Um, Why is that significant? For me, the 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 power of, in that sense, the, the medium, if you will, uh, is, is the modeling. And especially if you're a young 
kid and actually do talk to um, young parents and young dads uh, sometimes about what's it like to raise your kids in a godly culture of your house and what is that going to feel like? Um, how do I how do I make sure that my kid knows that their dad let's say honors God's word or their dad finds the Bible an important book if the only way they ever see me or hear me do that is by my telling them every time I pull up my smartphone, well, then it's not that much different than the experience of repeating the grocery list that mom sent us when we're standing here in the grocery aisle, right? Mm -hmm. Or, hey, kid, wait on for a second while I'm checking my sports scores. You know, could they use, they see me use that phone for everything all the time. And in in, in, in many ways, I, I it's so powerful to be able to carry the Bible around with you. Uh, I know the guys that help build UVerse, and it's, you know, a great, great tool. And, you know, I, I'm big supporter in, in having it. And yet, if that's the only thing I'm doing, my kid doesn't really have that moment to know for sure what I'm doing. And they can't mistake that their dad um, honors God's word if they see me pick up the paper Bible in the middle of our kitchen table every morning, Sure. let's say. Or when I'm tucking them into bed at night and you know there's a special book that is on their kid's bedside that is maybe the children's Bible that I gave them for their birthday. And every mm -hmm. night we read a story out of it together. And this is that, that book that we that we cherish together, you know, um, to me, there's a, a difference between kind of modeling something my kid won't be able to mistake and just kind of telling them words that they might hear and might land, but they might go in and out basically, you know, like they hear everything else I say. Yeah. So what is the, what is the underlying principle behind that concept? Because there might be a lot of listeners who say, I don't, I don't want to read my kids the Bible. Sure. Of course the yeah. Bible's true. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's gotta be something there that tells us about who we are as human beings, um, what would you say to those folks? Well, you know, I, as a dad, not necessarily as a DreamWorks employee, but really more as a dad, I would just kind of answer it in the context of, you know, we designed the culture of our house to be kind of something that reflects our family values. One of the things that's really popular right now is um, cutting the cord for cable. Right? It's kind of mm -hmm. become a thing over the past couple of years, and people are realizing I don't have to pay that monthly, and I could watch the shows I want on my laptop, and meanwhile, I can save the money. And mm -hmm. We actually cut the cord on our cable 19 years ago, and it really grew out of um, a year of watching Iron Chef all the time. <laughs> <laughs> my wife and I were totally addicted, and um, after a while, we're like, you know what? Uh, uh, this is a good show, but it's taking up every spare moment we have. You know, maybe we could do something else. And so we, we <laughs> cut the cord and we got rid of cable. In fact, we ended up, when our kids were young, we ended up raising them in a house where we didn't really regularly watch TV. You know, um, we definitely still had movie night and I had a, a great system for it when it was going to be movie night. So it, weren't, mm -hmm. it wasn't like we were against having, you Screens know, yeah, media, yeah. but to not also have it kind of be always on or kind of, you know, dictate our evening schedules, especially when the kids got older with homework. And we wanted to be a home that would read stories together. We read through all the book series together that you would if, you know, you're the dad of girls. So we went through all the Laura Ingalls Wilder series and all the Anna Green Gables series and then Jane Austen. And believe me, I've been through it all. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I'm coming to is um, what would be behind that idea is um, we have an opportunity to establish the culture that, you know, becomes the shaping influences for our kids to grow up in it and, and, you know, how they discover the stories that become important to them. And some of those stories are going to be media stories, but a lot of those stories I think can be right there on their bookshelves. Uh, a lot of the stories can be how they engage with the lives of their friends, you know, and kind of share those things back and forth to each other. One of the things we're seeing with our girls now that they're older is how they have their own text group, just the three of them. 
and two of them are out of the house and one of them still at home and my some of my kids live out of state and so you know because they're off to college and yet to watch our three girls regularly have their own discourse of how they're sharing their lives and their stories with each other um, and that's, you know, one that's of the amazing. best feelings that that's my wife and I have. That's something you initiated. No, that's exactly. they did on their own. They picked it up at that point, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. What else, knowing that you're exposed to so many current trends because of the company that you currently work for, um, on how new forms of technology are embraced by those who are telling stories, what, are there any kind of like red flags that you see as a culture? They're just like, oh man, we're, uh. You know, I asked because another thing that I remember from that initial phone call was like, yeah, man, you're right. This is what I said to you. I said, yeah, you're right. My three-year-old, you know, is already going up to the television and trying to touch on it, thinking it's a touchpad. And it's like his TV when he's my age. And then you interrupted me and said, oh, your kid won't have a TV when he is your age. (laughs) And that's when I realized that you know a lot about the trends of (laughs) technology and how we interact with the stories that are being told to us. Talk to us about some of the changes that you're seeing and some of the maybe potential dangers of I would say uh, the main thing that occurs to me, and I hear this a lot, I was just at a conference, a story conference in um, uh, Newport, Rhode Island a couple weeks ago uh, with some folks on the eastern seaboard, um, you know, kind of grappling with, grappling with the same kind of issues. I said grippling. I don't know if that's a word or not, but maybe it they is were. now. We can make yeah. it a word. They were grippling with these issues. Um, that it isn't so much about what to watch out for in terms of what's coming, but how, what are we holding on to that too long? Hmm. You know, that... Um, I am in, 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 uh, in a, uh, what's the right way to say it? I'm an aging, aging, aging Xer. <laughs> trying to struggle with admitting that so I'm 48 years old. So somewhere in there as a 48 year old, I'm an aging Xer. Uh, but there's a lot of us that are Xers and young boomers that still are kind of in, in the institutional roles of power. Right, we're the ones that can greenlight a project, write a check, um, get a get a um, production going, or think that something is legitimate enough to fund it. Um, we're desperate to reach the you know eighteen to thirty five year old crowd, the millennial crowd today, and their Gen Z kids that are coming up right behind them. Um, you know, right here in Nashville, twenty years ago, this town went through something called BitTorrent, right, mm. and file sharing yeah. that that uh, completely subverted all the institutional powers of how to have a music industry, right? From the retail distribution channels, and there goes Tower Records, to what the labels kind of value, and what the food chain looks like, and how artists and publishers, right? You know, it just completely disrupted the entire business. And yet today, more music is consumed and more new music is shared than ever before. But it's all in YouTube, right? YouTube is the number one music channel in the world. So um, our need for those, those. Um, There's a lot of people listening, by the way, right now, who I can guarantee you just went, "Whoa, what? Right? Wait a second. You know? Yeah. So one of the things that you know we've kind of had to do quickly is how do we kind of decalcify ourselves, right? You know? And there was this kind of epiphany moment not too long ago where a bunch of us and a bunch of our executives were watching our teenagers sit on the living room couch on a Friday night sharing their smartphones back and forth with each other for three hours, never turning on the 80 inch flat screen on the wall in front of them. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and you know, if you ask a kid today, a nine or 10 year old kid, what their favorite show is, they will instantly tell you their favorite show. I like to watch Sam and cat, let's say, well, what channel is it on? And then all they do is pull out their smartphone and go to YouTube. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, there's really no kind of like muscle memory for a kid to grab a remote and turn on a TV and find a channel. You know, the average age of a broadcast TV viewer today is 54 years old. So in terms of kind of the changing nature of the platform and what we're embracing, 
um, I remember on a, I was on a panel last year and um, a, a writer, who, I'm not a writer, but a writer got up to, after I spoke and I was championing like, you got to learn YouTube. And he said, well, YouTube is fine for those of you who still, you know, want to share some funny cat videos. Now let's get back to the real conversation of writing real scripts, oh, man. you know? And I just felt like, okay, I totally get where you're coming from. That's very telling, but also kind of symptomatic of what we want to hold on to, you know, versus being willing to embrace the risky new. Yeah. So I'm not going to hold you to it 10 years from now. No one's going to point fingers and say, you got it wrong, but <laughs> give us a good, just one pick, pick one. Think of a, maybe a prediction a decade from now, where are we going? Well, you know, um, how, let me rephrase that a little bit better, more specific. How will we be consuming stories 10 years from now? You know, uh, just even looking at the explosion of, um, the video tools inside things like Instagram and Snapchat are pretty interesting to me right now. Um, uh, 10 years from now, boy, hard to imagine that we would needing to be opening up a laptop or opening up a tablet unless we're looking for a larger screen experience. Um, Will that, movie theaters still exist? Oh, absolutely. You know, that to me is something that, uh, and just as a, as a fan, um, you know, if you look at all the different cycles of when people have said, oh, it's, it's over, you know, when, yeah. when movies went from sound to uh, silent to sound or when they went from sound to, um, uh, to black and white to color or when the television came in it's like why would anybody want to go to the movies anymore because tvs are in our home right yeah. and this was back in the 50s so uh, for sure we always want to go to uh, an event you know um to see to see an immersive content experience there's nothing like a movie yeah. um and there's really no nothing like the value of a movie you know if you think of what you spend if you're going to go see a, a sports game or if you're going to go to a play or if you're going to go to a, some other kind of or a, a symphony concert you know whatever else you're going to go to for a night out as a family and you compare that to the cost of a night at the movies it's still a bargain you know i think movies will always be here to stay yeah i, I do have a friend who who says that if like the new star Wars movies coming out, um, that they shouldn't wait to release it. He's like, give me an absorbent price. Give me the $99 and I can watch it in my living room that night instead of hiring a babysitter and taking my six kids to the movie theater. And, um, you know, so it's interesting to see even that people toying with the idea of release dates and when they're going to change. And what, what about the, so tell me what you meant when you said my kid won't have a TV on the wall is this is it does it mean he's going to be wearing some kind of glasses with augmented reality oh no i think or? we're always going to want screens i mean that's timeless you know we want to stand in and i mentioned the picasso print earlier right mm -hmm. we, we want art on our walls um we want that experience of being able to share it together mm -hmm. um i don't think it's ever going to go away the the form and shape of that screen you know is going to change um, and you know, I'm no futurist, but it's fun to see if you go to CES and you see the kinds of things that the early adapters are already starting to do, um, with screen technology and just imagine, okay, in a few years when that gets to be, you know, um, uh, middle-class pricing, it definitely is going to change how people think about their living room experience, but we're always going to want that experience. Yeah. It's interesting because you said you're not a futurist, but I, you know, I think it might be giving yourself a little bit of, uh, not giving yourself enough credit you know, cause you work at a company that's on the forefront of, I think even children's entertainment in in general tend to be those who are innovating, uh, the quickest, right? Because you're entertaining little kids and shaping the way they consume content. And yeah. Well, the, the, as my kids have gotten older and kind of aged up and out and they got real tired of me doing kitchen testing on them years ago, um, there are kind of two groups that I feel like I've 
needed to stay connected with to kind of just so I feel that that don't feel so calcified. Um, one is when I started teaching, you know, a college class on Monday nights um, in LA, and that has become my favorite two hours of the week. Um, to be in a room of, you know, about 20, uh, 22 year olds, uh, they're fourth year film students who are just chomping at the bit to tell stories in a different way. Um, and, you know, they're completely living <laughs> their social media life. Yeah. And then I can come in and talk to them about some of my experiences and what I've learned. But I also really do learn a lot from them. And I also kind of just see what lights them up. And, um, you know, the fun moments are when all of a sudden we're on a topic where their phones all drop to the desk. And, you know, we're, we're in kind of the face-to-face conversations instead of just looking up from their phones. Um, and so that's uh, one way to keep me honest. And another way is... Um, uh, once a month, uh, my wife and I volunteer at our church for the four and five year olds and, uh, to, uh, take on the responsibility of, uh, 40 to 50 four and five year olds for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning when they've all been fed pop tarts and, you know, carbohydrate laden sugar cereal, um, is, is pretty invigorating. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> And I am amazed at their. Uh, what are you talking about? I don't. I never feed my kid that stuff before <laughs> yeah, dropping sure. him off. At <laughs> I am amazed at their uh, depth of knowledge and immersion into all of the pop culture stories that are out there. They know all the Marvel heroes. They know who who would beat what and in what circumstance. They know the difference. Some of them know the difference between the Marvel heroes and the DC heroes, you know, and they can know where the divides are and things like that. Oh, you'd never see Spider Man in the same car with Batman. Here's why. And, you know, so um, just to be reminded of how savvy and how immersed they already are in a lot of kind of the stories of our culture um, is is really refreshing, but also, you know, keeps me sharp. What does that teach you? How does it impact your work? Oh, you know, that this stuff all matters and that nothing goes over their head, you know, um, that we can be telling stories that do light up their world um, that become iconic to them. You know, um, in the stages of a kid kind of understanding how the hero archetypes work and um, what the hero's journey is. And when a hero is paying that price and then kind of going through that act of redemption, they they may not be able to use, obviously, those words, but they definitely resonate with that hero's journey and, and why, why he did that thing. And, yeah. you know, and, and also they have a sense of authenticity. He would never do that. That's not part of his character that's not part of his makeup you know they don't obviously don't use those words but they have a sense of you know what that character would or wouldn't do yeah ah, so fascinating so now you're you're teaching this college class on monday night mm-hmm. and you're here in nashville to teach another college class at tomorrow at belmont i know it's a three-hour class so you got to condense it can you give us kind of a glimpse into what you're what are you teaching on these days well tomorrow we're going to uh, talk through um the four stages of the fantasy adoption process and um, this kind of it's a classic kind of a way to understand how story changes us. There are four basic steps that um, stories can impact and change our uh, change us from uh, first hearing them to adapting them into their lives. Uh, uh, inspiration is the first step. I'm inspired by a story I heard. Um, uh, it was uh, compelling. It was scary. It was funny, um, you know, it was adventuresome, whatever the, the aspects of that story was that lit me up uh, was my moment of inspiration. The next step is experience. Um, if I've grabbed onto that inspiration strong enough, then there's an aspect of that story that I'm going to start to experience. And maybe I get the soundtrack and I'm singing it as I drive around town. You know, maybe I've invited my friends and we're going to go see it a second time. Oh my gosh, you've got to see this movie. It was so inspiring. You have to see it too, you know? And so of course that's how word of mouth spreads. Um, most big properties or stories that impact people's lives 
pretty much work in that cycle, inspire and then experience. Um, then there's a next threshold you can push into called badging. And that's when I decide that that story is so important that I want you to identify me with it. And so you'll see me wearing that t-shirt. You know, you might badge my Facebook wall with it. Um, Give us I, a current example of that. Uh, uh, I may decide uh, I'm, that I'm a SpongeBob dad, let's say. You know, the whole thing's the worm. And uh, going around chores on Saturday morning, you know, I have no problem you running into me at the coffee shop wearing my proudly wearing my SpongeBob t-shirt. You know, that's a super simple example of it. Mm -hmm. But there are properties that I like that I would never wear the shirt for. But in that case, I'm happy to be identified on a Saturday morning as the cheerful SpongeBob dad, let's say, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And th that's badging. And then the fourth uh, and most uh, immersive level, and the hardest to get to, is gathering. That uh, fans of a story that are so impacted and changed by that story, um, they're compelled to want to get together and, and, and celebrate aspects of how that story changed them just for that. And so, you know, a big example of this is uh, Comic-Con. Uh, Comic-Con is kind of the banner or the banner uh, event for people to kind of all gather and show off how the stories of their lives have changed them. But you see this at a lot of the cons, you know, and there'll be a Star Trek convention or there'll be a Hello Kitty convention, a My Little Pony convention with a brony section on the side. Are there really? Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, uh, but also think of something else. Take movies out of it and talk about uh, cultural impact. So Harley Davidson, you know, is a great one. Um, I might be inspired by the idea of a Harley Davidson motorcycle. My wife may never maybe support me buying a $40,000 motorcycle, but I can still kind of live the Harley-Davidson kind of experience, uh, especially if I start to badge myself with a $400 leather jacket, right? And Even if you don't have the bike. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, but the core fans, of course, will gather in Sturgis every year, mm -hmm. and that is the, the core of the core of the Harley-Davidson experience. So this idea of the fantasy adoption process is a great way to think of how kind of any story that's going on culturally is actually changing uh, the people that are involved in that story and how it kind of helps move culture through, you know, through its cycles. How do your kids feel about the fact that you got to work with Justin Timberlake on Trolls? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, it, the, over the years when the talent comes in and out of our films and, you know, they're they're kind of, you know, not really Hollywood kids in a sense, but yeah, they go to the premieres with me and things sure. like that. But there have been a few moments uh, over the years where you just are in, in awe, you know, and all the talent we work with is just is the best in the world. Um, one of the moments early on was um, being able to stand next to Julie Andrews, mm -hmm. you know, at one of the Shrek premieres because she's the voice of Fiona's mom. And, you know, you're just standing next to basically, you know, the An world, icon. the yeah. world's nanny and grandma and a huge icon in her own right. And, um, you know, everybody's or all the squeezing each other's hands, like trying not to <laughs> trying not to stumble. Um, and then this last year, uh, being able to um, even just be a small part of this project with Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake has been, you know, just through the moon. It's been awesome. Do you have a Justin Timberlake story you can share with us? I don't have a good Justin Timberlake story, you know, because he is very, very protected uh, uh, and, and, and rightly so, you know, because he is one of the biggest stars in the world, you know, yeah. and he brings just this huge kind of, you know, level of awareness around him. Uh, I, you know, in that sense, I just felt lucky to be in the room. Yeah. Did you learn anything from working with him? Well, I mean, if you look at, you know, just if you watch the Trolls movie, um, you realize what an amazing talent he is, um, that, uh, you know, the way he brings Branch character, the, the character of Branch to life, um, 
it is so much more than just the music that he brings to the film, which is, you know, turned into the biggest pop song of the, of the year. But, um, you know, his embodiment of Branch really, really is the best way to tell that story. He's just dripping with talent. Every yeah. time I watch the guy work, I'm unbelievable. just like, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's we're amazing. lucky to have him. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, can you, are you allowed to talk at all about, uh, there's a lot of people that probably want me to ask you this question. There's Pixar, there's DreamWorks Animation. Did the two, like, are they just like evil competitors? Or is, is it cordial? Is it, you guys talk about each other when you go to lunch? <laughs> I, I can only talk about my own experience. And, and my own experience has been um, that it's all one giant community. Hmm. You know, that uh, everybody knows everybody. Uh, everybody respects everybody. Um, you know, one thing that maybe some people may not realize about the studio atmosphere is that we share each other's first run movies with each other. You know, so on the DreamWorks campus, um, it used to be on a Monday night. Now I think it's on a, on a Wednesday night. Um, after work, you can see uh, whatever first-run movies playing in the movie theaters right now. Really? And other studios will share their first, first-run movies with us, and we'll share our first-run movies with them. You know, so um, for sure, like any industry, you know, there, there's competition in the marketplace. Yeah. But also, we're all in this business, you know. Uh, I have friends in the toy business who have moved from Hasbro to Mattel to Spin Master to Playmates and back to Mattel. And, you know, uh, when you go, to the, the funnest time in any of these is, you know, going to every industry has their kind of annual trade show, you know, um, for a lot of the studios, it's the licensing show for the consumer products teams that are all in Vegas in June. Um, in the toy industry, you know, they're all in New York in, in February for Toy Fair, um, things like that. Um, uh, Annecy is a big one for the animation crowd, you know, to all kind of meet and see each other. And if you go dig deeper, a lot of them have gone to the same art schools or design schools, you know, a lot of them are in schools together, you know, and then over the years, your career moves on. You know, I've co-workers and, and kind of old friends uh, from the old days that now are either at other studios or at development companies all over town and you know we see each other all the time and and everybody just is proud of each other's success that's great i love that part that you're proud of each other's success you know sometimes i wonder if you know the competition is so thick that you know certain employees within certain companies can't give themselves permission to be proud of what the other guys did or accomplished you know so sounds like it's healthy well we like to imagine that it's all cutthroat you know uh there's that, that famous quote about it isn't that you succeed but your enemy has to fail <laughs> and I've, I've really never seen that that in practice in real life um you know it just life is too short yeah know? well and you guys have a lot of successes to be proud of you know i think there's i don't know if this is true or not but i would imagine there's some people out there that kind of feel like oh it's dreamworks they're constantly living in the shadow of the hugeness that is disney i guess and yeah, you guys have had some huge successes and told some amazing stories that have penetrated American pop culture and been a part of the fabric of the lives of kids around the world. And, um, you know, it's something to be proud of. And it's pretty cool that I'm sitting and talking to the guy that played a role in making all that happen. That's you know, amazing. just, just last week as I was overseas and, um, you know, uh, met a couple of families at uh, one of our trolls events and, um, you know, there was a, a mom and a daughter, and, and the mom was just as uh, kind of vocal about her love and experience with the DreamWorks movies as, as her now her younger kid was. And it just kind of struck me that, you know, uh, those things do mean, you know, they'll be around for a long time to come, and they definitely mean something to multi-generations. Yeah. Well, in closing, you gave, you gave story attendees a lot of great advice from stage. Uh, what's your last little nugget of wisdom that you'd offer to 
all the people listening to this podcast who are going, gosh, he's got so much experience. He's at what many would consider the top of the game, I guess, not to belittle it. No, no, not at all. What would you do to inspire those that are, you know, out there, they're just trying to write the next script or they're in college trying to figure out how do I be a part of the next animated film? Just last week, I recorded a video. Uh, thank you for asking. Just last week, I recorded a video greeting for uh, 3,000 high schoolers in Arizona that were all part of this kind of statewide uh, film competition. And um, I had to do this kind of two-minute video greeting. And I'm like, what am I supposed to come up with in two minutes, you know? Uh-huh. And so I thanked them for, you know, inviting me to, you know, say hi to them. And... Um, encourage them to all go see trolls and pay full price. And, um, and then I just picked up my smartphone off my desk and held it up in camera. And I said, you know, the, the great opportunity that every single one of us has today is that every single one of us has a more powerful storytelling tool in our pocket or in our hand than any of the great filmmakers that we admire ever had than any of the great writers or storytellers that we admire ever had. And so the good news there is that the, the barrier to entry the threshold over which you have to climb if you're trying to get your stories seen and heard is completely gone, right? So um, that's the good news. Uh, What that means is the only kind of challenge in front of us then is our craft, that the storytelling itself is what matters the most. And uh, and that's what I would just kind of encourage everybody to, to, to think about is, you know, in the, in the craft of your storytelling, what is it that inspires you? How do, how do you want to be telling your story? Are you telling it through color? Are you telling it through words? Are you telling it through music? Um, and, and, you know, be bold to share it. Uh, just one kind of comfort there is that there's always risk in sharing because we feel, f- you know, fear judge, be, being judged. Gen Z kids today have watched their older millennial parents and siblings live their heart on their sleeve. And they've watched some of them get really bruised and damaged by taking some of themselves out uh, into the public sphere, in the, in the social media sphere. And then you get judged and damaged because of that, and whether it's bullying or whether it's you put something out there and people don't like it or you, it makes you afraid. So this idea of being able to share in an atmosphere of unconditional acceptance and being uh, unafraid to share our failures is something that the Gen Z kids have really, really owned. You know, and so you have 12 and 13 and 14 year olds there out there now who are sharing poetry, who are telling stories about what, when they made a mistake at school, um, who are talking about when they struggled, when they went off to a camp or something, you know, that there's a new openness uh, to being able to kind of share the, 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 the realities of, you know, how we're living our lives together. And so that to me is part of like finding your craft in the storytelling, uh, because one thing that we don't have to worry about anymore is how would I ever get my story told once I, t- once I try to tell it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, those tools are there. So now it's just about kind of finding your craft and telling that story. That's amazing. And you've been so generous with your time and talent and wisdom. Thanks so much for being willing to share with us. I'm excited to see what you do next. It's going to be fun to watch. It's good to see you and definitely great to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. told you guys he's smart yeah really smart guy yeah i i really liked his interview actually tell me what you guys got out of that interview um one of my favorite things that he said was stories change and i liked i like that because i it seems really basic but it's really not like it's way deeper than that and one of the things he said was um 
that once we hear the story that we either change for good or for bad like it will project our life or the way that we tell stories or the way that we do things based on how we've basically heard a story whether it was on film or it was you know on tv or live or whatever it was so i just i just thought that was really cool yeah killing um i love the part when he was talking about how he watches animation movies um on silent and i was like yeah. at first i was like that's bizarre why because to me um it's it's hard to see um the expressions in an animation film but once I was thinking about it and hearing him talk about it I was like oh I totally want to go do that now and kind of watch the expressions of an animation film and how um, the animators and artists have um, used their art and their craft to express those emotions and what's happening in that scene yeah I it's easy to do on planes I see it every now and then because like I'll I'll be working on something on my laptop because I'm flying somewhere and uh, I'm like, oh, I don't want to grab my headphones or whatever. And sometimes I'll just turn on the movie and just let it play silently in front of me. Um, or what more often ends up happening is I end up watching the person Somebody sitting else's. next to me, their movie <laughs> silently, trying to figure out what's going on. And it's, it's a really interesting experiment to watch the story without being able to hear the words and the sound effects. Of- I feel like it would be more emotional because you, you're seeing things that, you wouldn't normally see if you had a narrative running because you're not looking for it. The narrative is telling you what you should think or what you should see. And when you, like when he's describing Dumbo and when the mother reaches through, reaches her trunk through and then rocks the baby, like that makes me as a parent kind of get all teary because I'm like, oh, that that's really emotional. And I don't know that I've ever experienced that while watching Dumbo, you know? So maybe the next yeah. time I should just Were either of you surprised that Dumbo was one of his favorites? Yes, very. Yeah. <laughs> just I mean, Dumbo's great, but it just doesn't seem like Dumbo. Yeah, well, one of the things that I appreciate about him and just DreamWorks as a company in general is just their their humble approach to how they talk about Disney and Pixar. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this honest authentic respect of Disney as a company and everything that Walt Disney did to sort of lay the foundation for who DreamWorks and Pixar would later become. Uh, and like, obviously they're competitors, but I, I love, I love that he's willing to talk about that so openly and just be like, yeah, Pixar is amazing and they make great films and we do too. And they're just very different, you know, but I, I would imagine it's really tough to work at a company where you're always feeling like, you're in the shadow of, oh, we're making great stuff, but like people are always talking about, oh, yeah, but they're not Pixar, you know? Yeah, that would be really hard. Well, it just seems unfair. I feel like they're they're appealing to <laughs> two totally unfair. different audiences. Absolutely, Pixar feels so much more iconic Disney and that younger age group, where DreamWorks feels like they're appealing to the teenagers and the adults. Like it's a little over my kid's head, and they're three and one and a half, so they've just they've yet to really get into DreamWorks films, even though they love Shrek. Yeah. I love that story that he told about meeting Spielberg, where he was designing some of his very first toys. And Spiel, the guy that he was meeting with was basically like, yeah, I think uh, we should show these to him. And like he's standing in the room, he's like, what's <laughs> happening right now? And Steven Spielberg comes walking in, is like, wow, these are great. Hopefully someday we collectively make something together that someone sees it and says, Hey, so and so would like to see this, and someone like Steven. Could you imagine Steven Spielberg oh gosh, walking into the front out. door of the office? <laughs> hey, I heard you guys had a really cool conference that for storytellers, and I want to be a part of that. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, jaws on the floor. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Let me pick up my face. 
<laughs> yeah, man, so good, so good. Uh, well, thank you, Rick, so much for uh, joining us. Um, thank you so much for constantly being willing to share your wisdom. He's been a huge friend of story, and he's been an open book concerning any time I call him with questions or just ask him for advice. And I've got a feeling we'll we'll all be hearing more from Rick Rick at all in the future. And thanks to Kate and Kellen for filling in for Sammy this month and this week and jumping in on the Absolutely. podcast this episode. Yeah, this is fun. Uh, we appreciate all they do behind the scenes and there's so many people here that are tirelessly working on all the stuff that we're doing and often you guys don't hear from them or you don't see their names at the bottom of emails or you don't see their pictures up uh, in certain places on the website but there's so many people that are working tirelessly behind the scenes to do all these things because we believe in what you guys are doing as listeners we believe in the stories that you're telling we believe that the, in the power that those stories have uh, we appreciate what you guys do um, out there which is which as a leader makes me appreciate what people like Kate and Kellen are doing to help us serve you guys. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening. We'll talk to you next week. Have a great week.